Welcome to episode 31 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Valmaki, and my co-host Steve Seidman will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about Israel and the UAE normalizing their diplomatic ties, the US's lack of support at the UN on Iran, as well as the contested election in Belarus. Our feature interview is with Professor Whitney Lackenbauer from Trent University, an expert on the Rangers and Arctic security. We also have a quick chat with Major Sean D'Souza about research he completed at the Canadian Forces College on Russian and Chinese involvement in the North. Our last segment today is a bit of a change of pace. Steve talks about baking. Thank you for listening. Stephanie, welcome back from your vacation. Did you have a good time? Yes, I did. I'm very glad to be back, Steve. And I'm also grateful to Alvin because she stepped in, allowing me to have this uh, extra one-week holiday. Even if I wasn't co-hosting with you, I still got to sneak <laughs> into the last episode since our last episode featured the interview you did with me and Justin Massy. What about you? Are you gearing up for the beginning of the fall term or still finding a bit of time to relax and bake and watch movies. Oh, well, I'll, I'll talk about the baking at the end of the podcast because we're doing a d different thing with the R&R &R segment. But now I've been working more on my summer, on my teaching in the fall than any other summer I have in my career. I spent yesterday taping a series of segments with David Hornsby, who I'm co-teaching a third year international relations theory class. And that was a lot of fun because the idea of these segments was for us to interview each other and actually argue with each other about the different theories that we're teaching. I learned a lot from his insights and it was fun to talk about some of that stuff. It's uh, definitely been a very, very busy summer because that's going on as well as all the network stuff and all the research stuff. So juggling everything and just trying to figure out what is the, the ball that I've dropped amongst all the many balls I've been juggling. And so I just realized I have a paper due for a conference in, in September, the American Political Science Association meeting is taking place online. Right now, I'm trying to f hope that, that I can fly out to Calgary uh, in March and go skiing with our mutual friend, JC. Mm. That's, I think, the next major chance for vacation. I don't think December I'm going to be driving south to see my American relatives. Oh, well, that's kind of uh, a sad note. So let's talk about happy news. We have a major breakthrough in the Middle East. Israel and the United Arab Emirates have signed a deal that in exchange for the UAE having a formal regular diplomatic relations with Israel, Israel agrees not to formally annex territories belong to the Palestinians. So what is your take on this big news? I think a lot of people are wondering if this deal between Israel and the UAE means that more Gulf states will follow in terms of opening up relations with Israel. At the same time, it really removes leverage on the Palestinian side because with this, there is still no resolution in sight for, for the conflict between Israel and Palestine. I was also just thinking more broadly about the role of the United States in all this because seen as a U.S. broker deal. But to me, the conditions that set this deal in motion have a lot to do with the progressive disengagement by the U.S. from the region after the Arab Spring and the U.S. no longer being 
seen as a reliable partner and ally by many of these states in the Arab world and the Middle East. So it's interesting to see uh, how these dynamics played out in, in this particular case. And of course, you know, Kushner and, and Trump's arguments is really, well, you know, states in the region can't really afford to miss out on the opportunity to have Israel as a partner because it's a security and economic powerhouse in the region and also brandishing the Iranian threat, having Iran as the common enemy is the other sort of sales argument that, that led to this deal. What are your thoughts, Steve? Well, first of all, I should note that we had a Twitter survey asking my followers whether Kushner should get credit for this. And 7% of the people who <laughs> answered the survey said, yes, Kushner deserves it. And 93% said no. I think what's interesting is the sort of the combination of domestic political interests that are at play here. One is that Netanyahu, you know, why did he sign on to this? Because he's been pushing for a long time for Israel to formally annex much of the occupied territories. And so what is he thinking? Why does he care? And part of it is that he's currently facing a lot of political upset at home because of his own corruption scandals. So maybe he's looking for something to distract uh, his people. Maybe he also is trying to toss Trump a bone because Trump needs as much success as he can get in the lead up to the election. And I think that's also something that the UAE is motivated by is trying to help Trump because I think you, you're talking about distancing from the Middle East, but I think one of the things of the past three years we've seen is that, that Trump has been very, very supportive of the countries of, uh, you know, the United Arab Emirates, the Saudi Arabia. We can't forget that wonderful picture of them all touching the orb. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, Saudi Arabia understands, for instance, and I think the UAE understands that uh, democratic administrations can be much less enthusiastic about the war in Yemen and is probably not going to be quite as willing to go along with whatever the Arab countries want. So this might be a way for them to try to throw some support to Trump to try to get him reelected. And I think that's probably something that's also true for Bibi Netanyahu, because he also understands that he's spent the past, I don't know, five, six, seven years alienating the Democrats. And so he doesn't want to see a Democratic administration either. So I think that might help to explain some of the timing of this, is that these folks in the Middle East, both <laughs> the Israelis and the Arabs, want to help out Trump at a time where Trump is really vulnerable. And I also think that, you know, what's striking about this is the Palestinians are very upset about this deal, that they, that they, they didn't get anything for this deal besides delayed annexation. I'm not really sure what the impact is going to be in the long term. I don't know if others are going to follow suit, if this is going to break the ice. Only time will tell on this. Neither of us are Middle East experts. We can ask our, our colleague, Thomas Juno and see what he has to say about this. And uh, I'll be talking to Besma Mamani in the weeks ahead for a future episode. So I'll certainly be asking her or her thoughts on this. And then since Iran was much discussed in, in that context, because uh, Iran is uh, the, the common foe, we can continue on with Iran stuff in terms of discussing the UN Security Council vote, which defeated a US proposal to indefinitely extend an arms embargo on Iran. So that embargo was first imposed back in 2007. And after ripping up the Iran nuclear deal or JCPOA, the U.S. tried to bring this issue in at the U.N. Security Council and just suffered a fairly humiliating diplomatic defeat at, at the U.N. I think the U.S. is just no longer seen as a constructive diplomatic player in this space. So when you saw this unfolding, did you see this as the humiliating defeat that everyone is painting this out to be? Well, my first reaction was, you know, if you're a smart agenda setter, you don't hold votes that you know you're going to lose. For instance, I'm studying Germany's oversight over its military right now, and Germany has passed every single military deployment that has come to the Bundestag. But that's because they choose not to do the things or, and choose not to have votes over things that aren't going to work. 
And so ordinarily, you wouldn't see the United States insist on a vote that it knows it's going to lose. You don't have those. You just choose not to have the vote. But as people online pointed out, there's the other side of this, which is that Trump wants to show that the UN hates the United States. He wants to show that he's defying the world because it plays to his base. While it may seem humiliating to the United States, he might be taking this outcome as a victory, which is really strange to sort of like trigger the libs and play to his base by losing American influence in the world. But that's sort of consistent with what Trump has been doing the past four years. He's been making choices that diminish America's role in the world. And that's a feature, not a bug. And so doing it at this case, yeah, as somebody who's a was born and raised in the United States, I find this embarrassing that, that the United States can't get uh, folks to join it. But I think that this particular policy stance was deserving of being thrashed because what Trump was trying to do is get people to support his anti-Iran deal stance. And the problem is, is that none of the rest of the folks who signed on to the Iran deal think that it should have been tossed away. That the Russians, the Chinese, the Europeans, they all thought the Iran deal was better than the alternative. And so they want to keep it going. And Trump, by opting out and then trying to keep the arms embargo going, is is trying to push everybody else into rejecting the deal. And they, they're having none of it. So he deserved to get thrashed in, the, in this. But it, it really is strange and sad that, that this kind of diplomatic defeat is seen as a victory. Yeah. And then as all of this was unfolding, I couldn't help but to think about Canada's defeat at the human <laughs> because. Now, obviously, similar issues can be discussed in in the future where Canada would have had to have a clear position on some of those issues. So I was just thinking, would Canada have followed its uh, European allies or would it have gone the way of the Dominican Republic and (laughs) being sort of a lone supportive voice of, of the U.S.? I definitely understand the European stance because... You know, when you think of all remaining signatories of the deal, they are obviously reluctant to support any move that would further undermine the, the agreement. And, you know, you have Iran, Russia, China, Germany, Britain, and France. And in that you have like a strong cluster of states with pull at the UN Security Council. But in terms of Canada, you know, being in the middle and not being a direct player in the negotiations with Iran, but having a, a really strong stake in a good and stable relationship with the U.S., or at least not wanting to anger the U.S., what would it have done in this case? I'm not sure. See, maybe it's a good thing we didn't win the, exactly. the, the, the <laughs> circuit council seat, right? Because then it's forced you to take stances that you don't want to take. You know, having a visible uh, position means you get visible. <laughs> you have to make visible decisions. So uh, maybe it's a good thing. I, I don't know. The silver lining. Let's just call it the silver lining. There you go. It's a silver lining that the, the Canadians are not going to be at the Security Council. Or at least, yeah, they're not going to have a seat on the Security Council this time around or for any time in the near future. Uh, my frustration is that the U.S. foreign policy should not be centered around Iran. and Its attitudes towards Israel should not be focused on Iran. Iran is a problem for the United States and it legitimately a problem for international peace and security. Uh, but the fact that it becomes the focal point of much domestic debate about foreign policy sort of drives me crazy. I'm curious to see what role it plays in the Democratic Convention this week, probably not much, and in the Republican Convention next week, where it'll probably play a little bit larger role, because this is one of Trump's major accomplishments, is he promised to get out of the Iran deal, and he did. Has it led to Iran behaving better? No. So I'm not sure what kind of victory dance he can do at the convention next week, but I'm sure he'll try. 
Now the challenge for you, Steve, is to come up with a nice segue to talk about Belarus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to try. We're just going to shift. We've talked enough about the Middle East. Let's talk about someplace else. Let's talk about Belarus. That's not much of a segue, but it'll have to do for now. It's very striking to see massive protests in the streets in Belarus. Belarus has been called the last dictatorship of the former Soviet Union, which is unfair to a bunch of the various other countries in the former Soviet space. But it, it's clearly one of the most authoritarian regimes in Europe. And we see what, once again, holding elections may be more damaging to authoritarian regimes than not holding them. Because when they hold them and then fake them, that becomes a moment in time to generate mobilization, to, to protest. And so Belarus had an, an election and the president of the country, and I want to make sure I say this right, Alexander Lukashenko basically said he got 80% of the vote. And this was after imprisoning a variety of potential presidential candidates. People didn't buy it. And now you have massive protests. And he's been trying to create events. There was a story this morning on Twitter where he tried to go to a, a tractor event to get support. And instead of getting a warm welcome, he got greeted with a chance of asking him to leave. And I think not just to leave the tractor factory, but to leave power. And Timur Karan, who is an expert on the spread of dissent, is seen resemblances to 1989 to Romania, where Ceausescu tried to go to what he thought was an adoring crowd and got booed. And that was one of the moments where the military switched sides. And so that's really the key question right now. Well, the two key questions. One is, what's the standing of the security apparatus in Belarus? And what is Putin going to do about it? So as you've been watching this, have you been having deja vu? Or do you see this as something completely new? I was trying to explain the, the timing of it and thinking about the events that have unfolded in, in the past few days, because Lukashenko has been ruling since the 1990s. So he's had several consecutive terms. So why now are we seeing this loss of popular support from his base across the country and this new contender uh, really being very popular and in a position maybe to, to challenge his leadership. So one thing that came up in the discussion surrounding the protests is how this particular regime has handled COVID-19 and it's been a disaster. So this has probably contributed to a lot of the popular mm -hmm. discontent in the country in addition to just growing tired of the corruption. And then you add also the economic strain that's also linked to COVID and, and then you've got a really disgruntled electorate uh, where there are you know, clear signs of, of electoral tampering. And Lukashenko and going to Putin, I don't think is that that was his first option either because the relationship between the two countries has been quite testy. And so this means that really there are no other alternatives for Lukashenko and it shows some desperation in his quest to cling on to power and, and the, the domestic unrest that we've seen the past few days. He got some support from Xi Jinping. He was the first to congratulate him after his <laughs> fake win, but it's hard to see uh, what, what he could do to help at all. In the immediate neighborhood, you have a bunch of NATO countries as well. So I couldn't help but think also about the implications for, for NATO. On the EU side, they've adopted sanctions and we'll discuss the next steps on Wednesday. The Baltic states individually have called for new elections, but NATO hasn't really been that active in terms of publicly communicating its position. Belarus accused NATO of a buildup on Belarus's western flank, something that NATO has denied. Belarus's neighbors include Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, who all have NATO troops on their, their soil as part of enhanced foreign presence. So obviously, when I think about the implications of this 
for Canada, I think about it through the prism of the, that NATO activity that's now been going on for some time. And I suppose further down the line, if Putin has told Lukashenko that he's ready to assist Belarus, then you wonder if the same kind of thing is going to happen as what we saw in Ukraine, sort of Putin using a pretext to establish a fait accompli. I do think that Putin cares a lot about having friendly regimes nearby. And I think he'd be very concerned if there was the possibility that Lukashenko would be replaced by a Western-leaning government. And that would be the kind of thing that might trigger him getting involved in a more serious way. So I think that's something to keep an eye on as well. We were asked on Twitter by Apollo Z, what are the key differences between Belarus now and the United States that gives us confidence that Trump cannot imitate what happened here? Is this just a brutish uh, intimidation or, or are the United States systems checks and balances more robust? Oh my, that does not fill me with a great deal of confidence. Trump has been doing a lot lately, uh, including interfering with the U.S. Postal Service to try to game the election in his favor. And he's been saying that if he doesn't win, then the election must be rigged. And he's saying that now at a time where he's down in the polls by roughly 12%. What's going to happen in November? Because the election will probably not be decided the night of the election because you'll have the counting of the ballots coming in from all over. He's going to say it's rigged. There was an article that was written last week that got a lot of heat about, well, if Trump stays in the White House and denies the election, then it's a job for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to get involved. And that got a lot of pushback immediately because, A, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff actually doesn't have any troops. He doesn't. He's not an operational commander, unlike the CDS in Canada. And it's really not the job of the military to decide outcomes in the United States. So let's not even think about that. There are some concerns. I think that, yes, we would see protests like this in the United States if Trump decided to try to stay in power despite an election that showed that he uh, didn't deserve to be in power. There's a process in the United States where the Electoral College votes. It'll be interesting to see how they vote based on, on what Trump tries to do with the election. So it's, it's very possible that he tries to bluster his way through it. But I think the, the key thing is, is that we see enough of mobilization on the part of the Democrats and their allies, and also the Republicans who are and independents who are really upset by the current events, that I think it'd be very hard for Trump to try to stay in office with a, after having lost the vote. But maybe his uh, instinct would be similar, calling Putin for help. Well, it's funny because I did ask a question on Twitter, which was, you know, Trump will surely, if he loses power, will pardon his entire family before he goes and maybe even pardon himself, even though there's, we're not really sure whether that's constitutional. But that only protects him from federal prosecution. It doesn't protect him from state level prosecution. And the other question we had was about uh, Canadian foreign policy priorities. So I think it's too soon to redefine Canadian priorities just yet. Uh, so much depends on the U.S. elections, especially when it comes to our bilateral relations with the Americans. It'll clearly improve with Biden, but if there's another term for Trump, then we need to find a way forward with the U.S. I don't think that the bilateral relationship as it is now is sustainable. So if Trump gets reelected, also Canada will have to find a way of leading global initiatives outside of international institutions. That's the other thing I was, uh, that came to mind. And there was an interesting article in Foreign Policy Uh, I just got it in the mail. Uh, I don't really know when because I've been away from the house for a while. But the Montreal Protocol keeps on getting mentioned as an example of a successful agreement that is the result of cooperation that, that happened outside international institutions. That was the um, agreement to, to restore the ozone layer. And it's one of those you know, rare and lasting 
examples of successful international cooperation and maybe the kind of model that we'll need to turn to if there is uh, another Trump term um, because it seems cooperation within the context of international institutions is just not going very well without uh, sustained American leadership and investment. Oh my, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head that we really can't figure out what the foreign policy is until we get past the election. We can think about our priorities. I would say that the most important foreign policy priorities a candidate has got is obviously U.S. relations, China, climate change, and oh yeah, uh, pandemics. So I, you know, those are the priorities. But how do you, but how do you handle them is the challenge. I mean, China is going to be a, a challenge for Canada, no matter who the American president is, and the, whoever the American president is can only help so much. And so we're going to have to figure out that relationship. We are in need of a reset in the federal government of having to think about the Chinese. And I think that obviously climate change continues to present an international problem. But given that Canada can't figure out its own house, I'm not sure we can lead in the world on that. We'll, we'll, we'll put that conversation off, but uh, I do want to thank Evan Hoffman for asking the question on Twitter. And as always, if you've got questions for us, either send it to our email address, info at cdsn-rcds.com, or tweet at my account, SMS admin, or at SVH Lecky to ask us questions, and we'll try to answer them here on the podcast. One thing I'm thinking about too now is that our we our episode is is really on the Arctic because <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I interviewed two people, Dr. Whitney Lackenbauer, and the other is uh, Major Sean D'Souza, and they both are discussing their research work on on the Arctic. But we spend the entire front end of the show talking about Belarus, Israel, and the UAE and Iran. So it, that's a rough transition if we ever had one. <laughs> we don't always uh, have a good correlation between the interview that we present and the events that are going on in the world that we want to talk about. The Arctic is a long-term problem, but I don't think there was any news in the past week or two that drew our attention the way that these other things did. But now that our, our listeners are getting to see how the... Uh, Sausage gets made, and it's not always pretty. Always a pleasure, Steph. Welcome back from your holiday. Good to have you back in town, in your town anyway. Thank you, Steve. Talk to you soon. Hi, my name is Sean D'Souza. I'm a mechanical engineer and an officer in the Canadian Armed Forces. I'll be working at the Army Training Headquarters in Kingston, Ontario. Thank you very much for being on the show, Sean. We're here to talk about the research project you completed as part of the Joint Command and Staff Program at the Canadian Forces College. Your paper was nominated for the Brigadier General George Bell Medal, which celebrates excellence in military writing. And in your paper, you talk about the dynamics of collaboration and competition between China and Russia on Arctic governance. Why did you choose to focus on China and Russia specifically? Well, I think that there's a lot of talk about Russia and China. Certainly there was on our course at the Canadian Forces College over the last year. Uh, and I felt that perhaps there was a little bit too much conjecture in how it is that we characterize or want to understand the relationship between China and Russia in the world, and specifically in the Arctic, which I think as Canadians, we should continue to be concerned about. Uh, and so I thought that it would be interesting to look at 
China and Russia and their relationship in the Arctic from uh, an unbiased perspective and actually dig in a little bit so we can learn something as opposed to just re-broadcasting the popular narrative. I like to think of the Arctic as a region that's a setting for great power competition. And in your paper, you sort of echo that. How is each state's quest for great power status shaping their respective strategies in the Arctic at the moment? Yeah, really interesting. You know, I think that it's one of these areas that we perhaps don't pay enough attention to. Maybe we're looking for a new or more modern or more logical explanation for behavior and interaction between great powers in the Arctic. And maybe that's not necessarily the case in terms of China, for example. How would one explain that China has professed their research scientists at Yellow River in Svalbard to be, you know, local scientists and Yellow River to be the place where these local scientists live. Why speak that way if Arctic identity isn't important? Why speak that way if only very practical issues of economy and security are important? And in terms of Russia, I don't think that we can afford to ignore uh, history in the Arctic, besides the fact that Russia is arguably uh, one of the most important Arctic nations today, the fact that they define themselves by their Arctic identity, uh, periphery center relationships in terms of, you know, bringing civilization to the, the Arctic as part of the Stalinist agenda. And also, more recently, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev's speech at Murmansk, and how that led to the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy and eventually the, the Arctic Council itself. And so if we look at that, identity is extremely important in how China and Russia handle each other and grow their relationship in the Arctic. And it explains a number of things that can't just be explained rationally, like why is Russia pumping tons of money into essentially non-viable economic mining operations in Svalbard in direct competition with Norway? And why is it that on one hand, China is collaborating with Russia for energy extraction projects, the biggest being the Yamal liquefied natural gas project, and on the other hand, uh, rendering obsolete Russia's strategy to provide escort services in the northern sea route by developing their own ice-capable vessels to transport energy on the northern sea route. You know, these, these things almost seem odd. They're definitely not well-meshed if we were going to talk about Russia and China having a unified strategy that's purely collaborative in the Arctic. And great power politics and identity offers uh, an explanation and insight that I don't think we can afford to ignore. That's very interesting. I like how your paper emphasizes uh, identity as an important consideration and then takes a deep dive into Arctic governance to understand the interaction between both countries. Based on your overall analysis and assessment, are there lessons for countries like Canada that may have a direct stake in the Arctic, but limited leverage in how this Arctic competition will play out? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the first lesson to learn is that we're not out of the game. You know, the popular narrative would uh, definitely reinforce perceptions that as a minor Arctic nation, we don't have a lot of pull 
and we don't have perhaps a lot of say in how things are going to play out. But from what I've researched in any case, I don't think that there is uh, sufficient evidence to point at uh, alignment between Russia and China that would cause a significant shift uh, in the, the power dynamics or the relationships that have been established in the Arctic between Arctic nations so that we're, we're no longer in the game and defining our future. So uh, that would be the biggest lesson that, uh, that I've learned is that Russia and China are collaborating, but they are also in competition. They're behaving opportunistically and uh, they're not aligned in terms of how it is they see Arctic governance developing into the future. One example would be, of course, the involvement of indigenous peoples in Arctic governance. And you see on one hand, Russia very much taking a, a central state-centric approach where you know indigenous people's agency is being severely curtailed with respect to perhaps the most forward-thinking Arctic nations, you know, the Nordic nations and how they handle indigenous agency. And then you see China in league with the North Nordic nations because if they want to have a coherent argument for a more encompassing governance structure in the Arctic that includes voices that are not uniquely Arctic nation-centered, well, then they have to accept that there needs to be a broader view that includes other important voices such as Indigenous peoples. So definitely Russia and China not aligned there, which provides our Arctic nations like Canada an opportunity. We should seize it. Well, I hope our listeners will feel compelled to read your paper, and I will just finish up our discussion on a more personal note, perhaps. You have just gone through the JCSP process, so I have to ask, why do you think this kind of research is important for a military officer at your career stage? I think we just need to better understand the world around us. You know, we play uh, a small role in what it is our countries seek to accomplish, and if we're unable to understand why it is that we're playing that role. I think that we can't expect uh, to do it well. You know, and I think this past year uh, has allowed me personally to understand issues in a way that will shape how it is. I see my tiny little job at Army T Training Headquarters next year moving forward, you know, uh, and that may seem weird because it's a big leap between talking about international issues and Army training. It influences things like what it is we emphasize and how it is we approach training and the worldview that we try to expose our trainees to. And so it's exceedingly important. Well, Sean, good luck in this transition and your move to Kingston. Thank you for making the time to join us on Battle Rhythm and congratulations on being recognized by the college for your research paper. That's great. Thanks very much, Stephanie. Take care. Whitney Lackenbauer is a Canada Research Chair Tier 1 in the study of the Canadian North and professor in the School for the Study of Canada at Trent University. He specializes in Arctic security, sovereignty and governance issues, modern Canadian military and diplomatic history, and Aboriginal state relations. He's published a ton of books, uh, including Breaking the Ice Curtain, Russia, Canada, and Arctic Security in a Changing Circumpolar world in 2019, and China's Arctic Ambitions and What They Mean for Canada, which is a co-authored book published in 2018. Hi, Whitney. It's a pleasure to have you on Battle Rhythm. We've been wanting to have you on pretty much since we launched this podcast, so I'm glad this is happening. 
How are you doing in these most unusual times? Oh, everything's going well. Family is happy and healthy. And like everybody else in Canada and, and elsewhere around the world, just adapting as best we can to, to new workflows and eagerly anticipating what will be some sort of new normal, I hope, in the coming months. Same here, whether I'm in uh, Ontario or Quebec, we've kind of been going back and forth. We're just uh, taking it day by day and uh, now preparing for, for the new school year and the new academic year. But part of the reason that we wanted to have you on the show was to discuss your, your Minds Network. Now, as you know, I've just launched uh, a Minds Network as well with uh, Justin Massif for, for UCAM, but you've been in this game for much longer with your network that's called the North American and Arctic Defense and Security Network. I'm sure there's an acronym for it. Can you pronounce that for us? Madsen. Perfect. And can you tell our listeners just a little bit about your network? Sure. So it's very much a collaborative effort. So not just my network, but belongs to everybody who's in it for sure. And we designed the network to address three core policy challenges. First of all, I have a long-standing interest in Arctic security. So one of our three sort of main pillars is the role of defense in the changing Arctic security environment. Second is looking at North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD modernization, and in a much broader sense, the future of North American defense in a broad-based way. And part of that is animated by the idea that you can't understand what's going on in the Arctic unless it's situated within defense of North America and North American security context. And then our third piece is the evolving role of major powers in global strategic competition. So a natural overlap and, and connection with what your network is doing and, and Justin's network is doing, Stéphanie. Also understand that a lot of what we're associating with Arctic defense issues are actually being driven by global strategic competition. So as much as we have North American and Arctic defense and security network in our title with that and, that's very, very deliberate. So we're not only looking at North American Arctic, we're looking at both Arctic security issues, broad-based and how those connect to various levels of analysis, right from the intensely local, what's being experienced by Northerners on the ground, right up to, to grand strategic drivers, and also this North American defense and security is a very broad-based term that we see as connecting our network to the other constellation of networks that are out there right now that are you know, we're all, we're all working together and, and playing for the same team in a very useful way. You started this with uh, some co-leads and some students. Can you tell us a bit about how your network is structured and the types of scholars and practitioners who are involved? Absolutely. So I'm really pleased to have Stéphane Roussel, a professor at the École Nationale d'Administration Publique in Gatineau in Montreal, as co-lead, as well as Dr. André Chiron, who runs the Security Centre at the University of Manitoba. So right from the onset, the three of us discussed what sort of span we would try to go and engage as a network looking at North American and Arctic, and had a lot of fun really trying to define what does conducting leading-edge research with students, with emerging scholars, with northern rights holders and stakeholders look like in a way that can actually test assumptions and hopefully encourage or prompt policy innovation within national defense. So our idea was we need, first of all, to mobilize some of the expert knowledge that already exists in the form of established scholars like ourselves. But at the same time, how do you go and put a strong investment 
into bringing to the fore a lot of the other voices and a lot of the brilliant minds that are out there in the form of postdocs. And we're really pleased to have as our network manager, Dr. Shannon Nash, who is a dynamo. Not only did she run the network on a day-to-day basis, but is also part of the intellectual engine of, of keeping us moving and, and proceeding forward. But then also really trying to invest in mentoring a next generation of thinkers And whereas there's an academic tendency, and and I don't mean this disrespectfully to all of us as academics, but to almost want to clone ourselves and to think that everybody who comes and works with us as senior undergrad students, or especially as graduate students, want to be like us and want to be academics. I embraced the notion that actually most of my students, or a lot of my students, are going to end up working in the public sector for government or in industry. So trying to work out a set of research plans and a research agenda that is conducive to to mentoring them as the policy innovators of the future and the practitioners of the future. So working together as a group and then trying to really understand what is meant by a network that's primarily built around academic expertise, but at the same time, so it's not a physical center. It's not like the old security and defense mm-hmm. forum model that a couple of our colleagues have just you know, written a wonderful piece in Canadian Public Administration on, that this is intended to be something different through minds and that it's really up to us as these networks to work with our contacts within the policy group at National Defense and invent what the this new structure actually looks like. So ours, I will say, is still continuing to evolve. It's part of what keeps me excited every day and every week to want to engage and see how this is unfolding and what sort of activities we can undertake to actually address this myriad set of questions that are facing us. That I've had every indication from the Department of National Defense, there's an eagerness, eagerness, to be able to tap into some of that expert knowledge that's out there across the country, which to me is the model going forward that we should be embracing. I couldn't agree more. And I think that the emphasis that you've placed on on students and the next generation is is very important. So I'm going to pick up on that and ask you exactly how you do this and exactly how you do this also in an environment where we've been pushed online. Students and emerging scholars may not have the established connections to just move seamlessly from face-to-face interaction to just online interaction. So how do you support and train and solidify that network amongst junior scholars with the constraints that we're currently facing right now? It's a wonderful question. And again, I think we're still trying to figure all of that out. So we're fortunate that we have several dozen research assistants who've been working with Madsen over the last four months. So over the span of the spring and summer terms in various capacities. And one of the things that we changed when we originally set up Madsen, we had gone and basically funded single RAs to work for a six month period. And instead we decided to maximize the access for a larger number of research assistants given COVID-19 and some of the employment constraints facing students in the current predicament that we're in, we thought instead, let's break this down into smaller 50-hour chunks of work for students. They could pursue a particular minds challenge question. So these are the questions that the policy group has come up with in collaboration with other members of the Canadian Armed Forces and the broader defense team to sort of say, these are the pressing challenges that we want some outside input on. So we've been really working with having RAs identify a challenge question that's of interest to them, pairing those students, typically master's students or really PhD students, up with a mentor. So this is usually an established academic, whether that be a professor or a postdoctoral fellow, and then working on that particular question and having constant dialogue either through Zoom 
or you know over the phone or just using tools like Dropbox or any file sharing system to just make sure that we're collaborating we have that constant contact the the emphasis that you placed on the transferable skills too I think will really pay off in the long term because it's true that many of our programs across the country in political science history or sociology they really have the academic track in mind and the reality is just different the reality is that our students end up in lots of different jobs and so thinking about the skill set that they might need for those next steps needs to be embedded in our training and education philosophy so I'm really pleased to see that you are doing that in creative ways with your network and I'm sure your student community within Natsen is benefiting tremendously from it and mixing that research piece with sort of the policy focus and I know this is something you have done also in your research so you've done really groundbreaking research on Arctic security but you've always managed to make it relevant as well for some of the pressing policy challenges that Canadians might be facing in the Arctic so the next question I have for you was really to tie up your own research research interests right now in this moment to the very broad activities that you have in, in the network, which really covers a range of topics from missile defense to NORAD modernization, North American defense, and so on. Thanks. Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this opportunity because having this network facilitates a more sustained conversation around a, a lot of what I've been developing as a research program over the last couple of decades. So where I'm at right now is trying to develop a more explicit framework for analysis of Arctic defense and security. And where it's sitting right now is trying to distinguish between threats through the Arctic, threats to the Arctic, and threats in the Arctic. And my first thing, of course, is to qualify and say, of course, these are going to be overlapping. But it's born of my longstanding frustration with what I saw as a, as a tendency in terms of academic commentators and, and even government commentators on Arctic security, where what do we mean by Arctic? Are we talking about the North American Arctic? Are we talking about the Canadian Arctic? Are we talking about the community level? Are we talking about the, the circumpolar North as a whole? Because what level of analysis were undertaken and what threat vectors we're looking at might very much change how we approach the set of challenges and how we conceptualize what are risks, what are threats within the Arctic. So a longstanding part of my career to date has been trying to dispel what I saw as some myths out there about Arctic security and very much trying to address what was seen as this sovereignty on thinning ice argument as I've come to, to sort of describe it in the Canadian context, as if climate change was meaning that the world was going to pour in and Canada's Arctic was now exceptionally vulnerable. And I say absolutely climate change is an incredible risk to the Arctic and environmental change in the Arctic is posing a lot of stresses on a community level. Absolutely important to go and listen to community voices. I've done a lot of work with the Canadian Rangers over the years. So just finished up a big report with a colleague, Peter Kickert, on resilience and how that framework can help us to come up with more robust metrics of gauging how the Rangers are contributing, not only to the Canadian Armed Forces, but also to their community level and breaking this down from emergency disaster resilience, community disaster resilience, community resilience, indigenous resilience, and even individual resilience. But also then trying to say, there are other great power competition or major power competition dynamics going on at the global level that are drawing attention to different delivery systems, hyperglide weapons or next generation cruise missiles that would, owing to trajectories that have been well established since the Second World War, would fly over the Canadian Arctic. My suggestion is some of those discussions are best undertaken by, by individuals who are looking at things through a global strategic lens. The decisions on whether or not to launch a nuclear or conventional strike against North America is not going to be made based upon Arctic criteria. 
it's not generally related to Arctic related dimensions of climate change. It's driven by a very different set of drivers. So making sure we get those levels of analysis right and separate out and suggest that absolutely threats through the Arctic are important and have to be managed. It may mean deploying certain detection systems or sensor systems within the Arctic, but that's very different from the challenges that people are experiencing in the Arctic at a local level. So what I love about NADSIM is being so broad is that it allows us to delve into all of these questions and to grapple with the complexity and hopefully as a desired end state for me, bring more analytical clarity, allow us to come up with more transparent and explicit benchmarks that we can use to then measure whether or not we are seeing systemic change or different indicators of change that may be portending conversion of risks into threats. So right now, I have not seen us as an academic community really work hard within Canada to develop explicit metrics. What I'd love to see coming out of the, the NADSEN project is a much more explicit set that are co-developed with members of the Canadian Armed Forces and policy types at National Defence to ensure that what we're doing is not duplicating efforts that they're already undertaking. At least we're not unknowingly duplicating. Sometimes some strategic redundancy is good, but at the same time that we're complementing a lot of their lines of effort and also playing a good role in consolidating a lot of the really rich research that's out there on Arctic defense and security, because there's a lot of it and making sure that there are opportunities and platforms for Northerners to share their expertise on a lot of these issues. When I was up in Kugluktuk in Nunavut in late January and asked a question about what Kugluktumiut thought about Russian and Chinese threats to the Arctic, the one fellow looked at me and said, yeah, we don't, meaning we don't think about those things. And we proceeded to have a very rich one hour conversation about climate change and challenges of traveling on the land and search and rescue and cruise activities, cruise ship activities and need to be vigilant and keep eyes and ears open. And I thought all of those are important discussions, but by actually separating out threats through and threats to or in the Arctic. We can have different conversations with different people interested in different sets of questions. And at the end of the day, maybe bring some more coherence and, and be more attuned to what the different priorities are amongst different communities or different constituencies. Well, now I'm tempted to throw that question back at you. So I like how you frame <laughs> it as, as a, you know, a region in itself and, and the concept of threats through the Arctic, but the Arctic, even using your own words, is, is even a microcosm for great power competition involving Russia and China. So who should we be most concerned about, Russia or China, as far as the Arctic goes? Well, it's interesting. I think good general concern is a positive thing. So I'm, I'm not even gonna, I'm cheating on the question there. I think <laughs> that we're also looking at time horizons. I think in terms of short to medium term, so horizon run, horizon two within DND calf speak uh, out to say eight years. I think Russia, from a military standpoint, so if we're looking at the defense, hard defense side, is probably our focus. So figuring out how we're going to deal with hyperkinetic delivery systems, try to understand what the logic of deterrence is when we're playing in the cyber and cognitive domains. And, and again, we've seen a lot of action on the part of Russia. I don't particularly see Russia as an Arctic specific threat. And we can chat more about that if you're interested, but trying to understand where the Arctic fits within Russia's more broad strategic plans as, I would say, a resolutely status quo actor in the Arctic, but an actor that's shown signs of revisionist actor, and as Putin has declared, certainly not a proponent of the liberal order that Canada has really flourished in since the Second World War. We have to try and still figure out where 
Russia is going to exercise its weight. But I also see it as a major power that's quickly being eclipsed by or has already been eclipsed by China. And China, I think, is playing an altogether different grand strategic game. And I don't think that we've, within Canadian circles or North American circles, really wrapped our head around what it is that China is seeking to do. I think long term, China is the big question mark, not just in the Arctic, but broadly. So one of the frameworks a friend uh, and colleague, Elena Wilson-Rowe in Norway has talked about is this concept of frenemies. And I think in a way that's the, one of the frameworks I'm trying to apply to Russia in particular in an Arctic context short term is, are there ways that we can maintain credibility as a country with strong sanctions against Russia who are not willing to accept, you know, what's happened since 2014 as a new status quo globally, but at the same time, realize that we have some common interests in the Arctic and it's perhaps not in our advantage to escalate tensions in an Arctic context over issues that are not born of Arctic resource disputes or boundary disputes or these other myths that I think we've allowed to, to grow over the last 15 years, but trying to strike the right balance of how we want to use the Arctic. And one of my other pieces these days is how do we not allow the Arctic to become a diversionary theater where would the adversaries undertake activities or send us signals in the Arctic to get us to draw a bunch of our resources? Yeah, material resources, but also our intellectual resources into dealing with the old Don Quixote idea of tilting at windmills, mm. that we're tilting at something that's not the real center of gravity, that that may be elsewhere in the world. So how do we keep the Arctic in its place? Another question, and that's shifting gears a little bit, but you have an academic profile, of course, and you've been involved through your research a lot with the, the Ranger community. And that's led you to take up a role as Honorary Lieutenant Colonel with the 1st Canadian Ranger Patrol Group based in Yellowknife. So I'd like to ask you not only how this opportunity came about, but also how you approached the role, how you prepared for the role, and how now you are involved, I imagine, on a weekly basis with this patrol group. So Stephanie and I are fellow honorary lieutenant colonels uh, in the Canadian Armed Forces. So this is, an, and, and within the Army in particular, long-standing tradition of either bringing in members of a community, former officers within a regiment, if you're talking about down south in the primary reserves, and having them serve in a role of contributing as a connection between the unit and civil society and the community, and also being part of supporting the honors and traditions of that particular unit. So I was drawn into this role, I think, because of, up to that point, about a decade, a very sustained research that I had undertaken with the Canadian Rangers to try to understand the nature of this organization, which is a really, as I see it, a very unique, and I don't use that word like, but a unique Canadian solution to the question of how do you have a defense presence, a military presence in a massive country where the threat assessments are pretty modest when we're talking about the Arctic and historically have been for sure, and parts of isolated coastlines to go and set up permanent garrisons or to try to adopt the models used in more densely populated areas just wouldn't fit. So 1947, the Canadian Rangers were created as a solution to this dilemma. And the idea was provide Northerners or residents of remote regions with very minimal amount of training, 
a rifle, a couple hundred rounds of ammunition a year. And over time, there's been more training provided to these, these individuals, but have them serve as eyes and ears, and over time, the voice of their communities within the Canadian Armed Forces. So I, I love this story. I think it's an interesting example of reconciliation in practice, and has been since the 1970s. It's about community empowerment. It's about individuals being volunteers, supporting their community, their territory, their people or nation, and their country, all simultaneously in, in almost a seamless way. So I'm giving it away here, right? I'm, I'm like their biggest fan. My heroes wear red hoodies. So I think that was probably the main catalyst for me being asked and invited to serve the unit in an honorary capacity, was to share some of that knowledge that I've amassed about the history of the Rangers, at the same time, be able to share some of the histories back to the Rangers that the Rangers had taught me or shared with me. I love the role because it also means that I can be a listener and a quiet advisor to commanding officer. I can be a sounding board for members of the unit, right from the individual Ranger or Ranger Corporal, right up to the commanding officer. And because as an honorary, I'm not subject to the chain of command. It's wonderful. I'm more sensitive to it but not subject to it. So you can be a, a different sounding board and actually share ideas and flow ideas in a, in a different capacity than anybody else in the unit can. Because of all the historical work I had done on the Rangers, I, I very naturally you know, flowed into the role of being one of the ranger storytellers and always emphasizing to the rangers that it's actually their story it's their history it doesn't belong to me but still a sponge wanting to soak in as much as they're willing to teach me and it's been really a remarkable opportunity to not only travel to the north as some people do but i've been so blessed to get to travel extensively in the north with the people who know the north best with people who share insights into what it's like to live in that particular homeland and to continue to astound me continuously with this incredible deep locally situated expert knowledge that they possess and that they're so willing to share with other members of the Canadian Armed Forces who deploy up into their their home areas and how as a force multiplier the rangers are something really special and are an incredible example of diversity in action and how diversity is a force multiplier in a Canadian context. And it's been done in, I think, a very grassroots, organic way to develop these relationships. So I'm just fortunate that I've have been able for the last six years to serve in this honorary lieutenant colonel capacity. I've been extended for one additional year, largely owing to COVID-19, but to serve in that capacity for another year and to continue to work to serve the unit. And what I love, Stephanie, and maybe you find this as well, is, you know, like many of the Rangers, I wear multiple hats. I, I really try to be deliberate that when I'm wearing my Ranger red ball cap and visiting the communities, I'm there as the Honorary Lieutenant Colonel. I'm not there as an academic. I'm not sticking ethics forms in front of people to sign when we're having conversation or anything like that. I'm there to serve them and to serve the unit. But that said, it's taught me a tremendous amount as an academic about how the Canadian Armed Forces functions, about all the different layers of relationships within the Canadian Armed Forces and with their broader communities. And it certainly enriched me as an academic in making sure that if I'm embarking on research projects, about the Canadian Armed Forces, or in this case, about the Rangers, that they're not objects of my research, that they're very much subjects and that we're co-creating research agendas and determining priorities. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, as much as I love to write books, and I love to write the peer-reviewed articles, that for every one of those books written for an academic audience, I better be coming out with one or two books that are written for a community audience or a CAF audience. And at the same time, for every peer-reviewed article that I'm putting out, I should be putting out policy relevant and practice relevant products defined in consultation 
with the calf that are actually going to be relevant to the people who are actually living and breathing this stuff every single day. I've been taking notes actually as you've been talking because I'm right at the beginning of this journey. I started in January mm -hmm. and then of course COVID hit in March so that disrupted a lot of the unit activities from training to the special commemorative dinners that we have in the spring. And I also uh, have to confess that during my honoraries training, I was exposed to a video that you made, Whitney, about the <laughs> Rangers. So <laughs> you were actually part of my honoraries training, both formally, <laughs> as I took it you know, at the fourth division headquarters and informally through this conversation. So thank you. Oh, I love it. Whitney, it's been a real pleasure catching up with you. Thank you very much for being on Battle Rhythm, and I hope you'll be back. Well, thanks, Stephanie, and look forward to collaborating with you, and, and Matt looks forward to collaborating with your network as well. And certainly any listeners interested in reaching out, always happy to, to take an email. Absolutely, and that's such a perfect way to close things off. Thanks once again. Thanks. We're going to do something different today on the r, r segment, which is rather than focusing on what we're watching, I'm going to talk about what I'm eating. The way I've gotten through the pandemic thus far is to focus on this trinity of stress baking, which leads to stress eating, which then leads to stress exercising. I've been much more dutiful about my exercising because it makes me feel better about my stress eating. And my stress eating has been fostered by my stress cooking, but stress baking. What I recommend to everybody is a couple of outlets. One is Nigella Lawson has an app that's very cheap and it has a bunch of really easy recipes that are mostly quite tasty. They're not all perfect. I'd avoid the coffee shortbread recipe. That was one of my big failures because I think it was kind of incomplete in the recipe. But a lot of the stuff there is really, really easy to make. I'm a big fan of her and it's not really on her app, but it's on the website or on her webpage. Not Nigella Lawson's chocolate chip cookie dough pot which is a small uh, little chocolate chip cookie dough cake where you actually don't cook it all the way through so that way you can eat gushy chocolate chip cookie goodness so i'd recommend nigella lawson's app and also uh, just searching recipes on our website because again they're pretty straightforward uh the app itself does have videos that are somewhat helpful the second i'd recommend is king arthur's website king arthur is a flower company and you could buy all kinds of flour and also baking products from them. But more importantly for me is they have a lot of recipes that use all different kinds of flour. And the recipes are all very clearly written and they produce really tasty food. So my favorites have been the apple turnover and cinnamon buns. I made cinnamon buns for my birthday a few weeks ago. King Arthur's website. And you can also check out my blog post of If You Can't Bake It, Fake It of uh, my Sademan's spew of August 12th. My recommendation for this week is to bake so you can eat and then they'll force you to exercise. At least that's always worked for me. Have a great week, enjoy the food and wash your hands before you bake and after and wear a mask. Take care. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN dot rcds at outlook.com. Thank you.